This video is part two of a two-part series on war trains. If you want to get the full history of these titanic engines of war through the Civil War times to the end of World War One, you can check that out. It's the previous video on this channel. But if you don't mind about all that stuff and you want to jump right into World War Two, that's fine as well. Because this is where our story really gets explosive. This is the moment in history where the power of these armored trains reaches superweapon status. This is the story of the greatest battle engines ever run on rails, the story of a Nazi superweapon, and ultimately, the story of the trains armed with the nuclear power to decimate entire countries. This is Armageddon on rails. This is Wars of the World. By the time Hitler marched into Poland, trucks and aircraft had matured significantly in terms of reliability and performance, and began to strip away some of the military train's duties close to the battlefield. Nevertheless, trains remained the only way to quickly move large numbers of men and equipment over any prolonged distance on land, and so keeping them moving was of vital importance. But this was a task that was becoming increasingly difficult. With the growing range and firepower of aircraft, there was almost nowhere in Europe where a train could safely traverse without fear of attack from above. Not even armored trains were immune, and the fitting of anti-aircraft guns was more of an act of desperation than actual defense. Furthermore, railway lines, stations, and marshalling yards were all prime targets for bombing, but regardless, those who operated Europe's railway lines pushed on in the service of their countries. Once again, Germany's efficient rail network would prove vital to its campaign to expand outwards and keep its forces supplied, but Hitler's trains would also be instrumental in writing some of the darkest chapters in human history. As they implemented their final solution against the undesirables of Germany's Europe, people of the Jewish faith, Romani peoples, and many others, it would be the railways that would help achieve the industrial scale of the murder that they would undertake. Men, women, and children from all of the German-occupied lands of Europe were rammed into cattle and freight cars until they occupied every possible space inside before being locked in. Unable to move or sometimes even breathe, it was not uncommon for large numbers of people to simply suffocate in the darkness of the carriages as they rattled their way to concentration camps like Auschwitz. In some cases, the victims died of thirst or hunger after being left in carriages for days at a time. When Germany went into the Soviet Union in 1941, there was an active plan in place to sacrifice the Soviet population for the good of the German people. Food produce was seized from across the vast land's agricultural base to feed the German army while what was left was then transported back to Germany by rail, leaving countless Soviet people starving to death. However, this policy would backfire for the Germans, who eventually found themselves retreating from the Soviet army and finding very little left for them to eat. 
This put incredible strain on the German rail network, who now had to keep them fed, but German trains had to contend with the Soviet partisan groups engaged in a deadly sabotage campaign against them. As before, trains had empty wagons put ahead of the locomotive to trip any trackside bombs and spare the important cargo. However, the partisans came up with an ingenious way around this, such as setting up tripwires, which were passed over by the decoy wagons and then tripped by the locomotive. And the partisans were by no means a mere nuisance. On the contrary, they were a serious threat to the German war machine's ability to function. Such was the importance of the German rail network. Similar sabotage campaigns occurred across Europe, often supported by British and later American special units. Tens of thousands of German locomotives and wagons were destroyed, damaged or delayed each year for the remainder of the war. And this was an intolerable situation for the German command, who authorized their troops to take brutal revenge on anyone who they even remotely suspected of being involved in partisan activities against the railways. Even a simple paperwork mistake by a local civilian forced to work for the Germans could see them hung as a warning to others. One of the key weapons transported by rail by all sides were tanks, and for the German trains, this presented yet another problem. By the end of the war, German tanks had grown considerably in size and weight. The famous Tiger tank, for example, was too wide to travel safely on Germany's railways without hitting trackside objects such as signals. Therefore, the tracks, some of the wheels, and the side skirts had to be stripped from the vehicle while being transported to the front by rail. This problem would only get worse with later heavier tanks such as the King Tiger and resulted in delays when the tanks arrived at their destination and had to be reassembled. Delays that the Germans simply could not afford. German forces also re-embraced railway guns during World War II, more so than the Allies did, and included the K-12 gun, which fired a 211 millimeter shell out to a theoretical range of 71 miles. The K-12 was a development of the so-called Paris gun of World War II, which, as the name suggests, was designed to shell the French capital from German positions on the Western Front. Hitler's troops used the K-12 and other railway guns to defend the German-occupied French side of the English Channel, as well as sending a few propaganda shots into Southern England. Fragments from one shell were found in Kent, some 55 miles from the railway gun's firing points, but these German attacks did not go unanswered, with the British Army deploying three 343mm railway guns on the East Kent Light Railway to send shots back over the channel. However, without a doubt, the most famous railway gun in history was the truly colossal and astonishing Schwerzer Gustav, the Nazi superweapon. This 1,350-ton behemoth of an artillery gun had to ride on two sets of track and was designed to smash through the French's defensive line by firing 7.7-ton shells over 30 miles, but it arrived too late to take part in the Battle for France. Instead, it took its enormous power to the Eastern Front against the Soviet Union, where, during the Siege of Sevastopol, one of its shells destroyed a Soviet munitions depot some 30 meters below ground level. It was power unmatched. <laughs> 
But as astonishing as the figures were, the weapon was not as practical as the German command would have liked for the nature of World War II combat, which was often fast-paced, involving tanks and aircraft. Had the Schwerer Gustav and its sister, the Dora, been manufactured during the static fighting of World War I, it would have been a highly effective weapon. But as it stands, even this titanic monster of engineering was not enough to turn the tide against the Allies. Elsewhere during the conflict, trains continued their less exciting but strategically vital logistical roles. In the UK, the numerous British railway companies were again brought under complete singular control by the government, essentially formulating the blueprints for what would become the nationalized British Rail Service. One of their first major operations was Operation Pied Piper, which saw the evacuation of over 800,000 school children from cities such as London to the countryside in the first three days of the war alone. During the same period, 700,000 pregnant or new mothers with children under five, disabled persons, teachers, and carers were also evacuated. One and a half million people evacuated in three days. That is the vital power that only the train could offer. In the Far East, Japan's Asian Blitzkrieg saw huge areas of land fall under its control relatively quickly, leading to a desperate need for new railway tracks to be laid. In order to achieve this, civilians and allied prisoners of war were pressed into service with very little in the way of food, water, or any connections for their safety. In order to motivate them, Japanese soldiers would often set a daily target for the prisoners to achieve. If the target was not met, they'd be forced to dig a grave, and one of their number would be picked at random for execution. Despite the most explosive theaters of war being Europe and the Pacific, for the Allied war effort, probably the most vital railways were in the United States. Few would argue that it was America's vast industrial and manufacturing base that was the key to the Allied success against Germany in Western Europe and Japan in the Pacific and Asia. At the very least, America sped up the end of the war. Not only did the United States have access to vast quantities of strategic materials, not only could they manufacture thousands of tanks and aircraft every week, but this manufacturing was almost totally exempt from enemy interference. But of course, building these tools that Churchill said would let them finish the job was only part of the story. They had to be delivered, and for that, they needed trains to get them to the harbors so ships could take them across the seas where more trains would be waiting to take them to the front line. The United States Military Railway Service, like all branches of the armed forces, swelled in size during the war. The MRS functioned along civilian lines, but was manned by military personnel with a military hierarchy. Naturally, many of its new recruits were pulled in from civilian railroad companies, and as America's fighting men became fully engaged in the war effort, they began to deploy to every theater of combat with them. In many cases, they repaired or even built local infrastructure to support their local operations. This devastating efficiency and speed brought forth a hurricane that the Axis powers could not stand against. The Second World War was over, but the ultimate power of the war train was yet to be seen. A power to shake the foundations of the Earth itself. The power to bring the end to all of civilization. The power 
of the nuclear bomb. The post-World War II era saw a steady decline in the use of the railways the world over, as more and more people, particularly in the West, gained access to the comfort and convenience of personal transports like cars and motorcycles. The golden age of the railways was passing, typified by the withdrawal of the grand-looking steam locomotives, which were replaced by the more capable, but less impressive, utilitarian-looking diesel and electric ones. But contrary to what some people thought in this new age, where cars could take you straight to the airport and you could hop a plane to fly hundreds or thousands of miles in a few hours, the train refused to die and continued hauling passengers and freight. It occupied a place between road transport and the international transport of aircraft and ships. As had been proven time and time again, there just simply wasn't an alternative that could move very heavy loads across land as efficiently as the train. As the victorious allies in the East and West settled into the post-war world, they began to view one another with growing suspicion, and there was a whisper in the air that the next great war would be between Washington and Moscow, along with their respective allies. A war between capitalism and communism would prove extraordinarily deadly thanks to the use of nuclear weapons, the very weapons that ended World War II, which now threatened to obliterate civilization in an atomic fire. It was to be the last war, the Great War. It was to be the end. Both sides built huge stockpiles of nuclear weapons that could be delivered onto their targets by air or launched from land bases and eventually from submarines hiding in the world's oceans in order to keep the other side in check. Given this age of technological one-upmanship, you might be forgiven for thinking that the train had little part to play other than its traditional role of hauling troops and equipment, perhaps even the bombs themselves, to staging areas in times of tension, such as the famous Cuban Missile Crisis. But if you think that all trains are good for is transporting weapons, you haven't been paying attention. Throughout the Cold War, trains would achieve their ultimate military application as they became mobile, roaming launch platforms for intercontinental ballistic missiles armed with nuclear warheads. Given the advancements in strategic bombers, missile submarines, and even missiles mounted on trucks, the train seems an almost old-fashioned way of addressing the need to maintain a nuclear deterrence. However, trains offered advantages over the newer, more exotic methods. Key to a nuclear deterrence is the ability to guarantee that in the event of a surprise attack by the enemy, your country will still be able to launch missiles in retaliation, inflicting immense devastation on them as well. Thus, the fear of sustaining such destruction is what keeps war from breaking out in the first place. The best way to do this is to keep the location of your missiles a secret from the enemy, so that they can never plan an attack that destroys all your country's nuclear arsenal in a single strike. Radar can detect bombers, spy satellites can locate missile-carrying trucks at their staging areas, and both sides developed intricate submarine hunting sensors and weaponry. The main advantage of mounting ICBMs on trains was that they could be concealed within ordinary-looking train carriages. 
only revealing themselves when it was time to carry out their apocalyptic mission, by which point it would be too late to stop them. With thousands of miles of track to operate on, it would be near impossible to confidently locate and destroy the ICBM carrying trains in a first strike, meaning that the country operating them could retaliate effectively even if their other nuclear units had been destroyed. An additional benefit was that should an attack be detected, the trains were capable of hiding in tunnels to protect themselves from nearby nuclear blasts and then re-emerge afterwards to retaliate in kind. The early ICBMs were extremely large weapons and so they would be impossible to carry within a typical railway car. However, by the 1980s, ICBM technology had advanced to such a degree that it was now possible to do so, and both the United States and the Soviet Union initiated their own development programs. The United States program was deemed the Peacekeeper Rail Garrison, and aimed to deploy 50 MGM 118A Peacekeeper ICBMs within rather innocuous looking 87 foot long rail cars in times of increased tension. Each peacekeeper train would consist of two locomotives to guarantee that the train could keep moving if one should fail, two peacekeeper launching cars, two security cars with armed guards inside, a commander car for launching the missiles, and a maintenance car. These trains were totally self-sufficient and could feed and house their crews for up to one month. The United States Air Force who would operate the nuclear trains in conjunction with their silo-based Minutemen ICBMs predicted the cost of the project in 1991 to be at $2.6 billion, approximately $4.13 billion in 2020. Across the Iron Curtain, the Soviets were doing much the same. The Soviet trains were significantly larger than the American ones, comprising of three DM-62 locomotives hauling a total of 17 rail cars, including one housing the missile, one housing support equipment, and another housing the command center. The end of the Cold War saw the US program cancelled, but the Soviet program was advanced enough that 12 RT-23 trains were eventually built and operated between 1987 and 2002, coming under Russian control after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Russia had planned to deploy a new rail-based nuclear missile system in the 2010s, but by 2017, the program had fallen by the wayside due to a lack of funding. However, in China, rail-based ICBMs continue to be developed. Yes, that is right, there are trains on the rails today, right now, with the power to crush continents. In December of 2015, the Chinese reportedly tested their DF-41 missile, which is capable of reaching the United States and is equipped with multiple warheads from a launch canister mounted on a rail car implying that they intend to deploy their own missile trains. Thankfully, these devastating nuclear war trains have never been used, but one does wonder, what if they had? What if the world had been engulfed in a nuclear fire? Would trains have had a role in rebuilding civilization afterwards? The general consensus among military and government analysts the world over was that a nuclear war would be so devastating that almost none of the infrastructure to support a modern rail network would remain in place, 
diesel stocks would quickly dry up, and electric trains would be rendered useless as national power grids would be destroyed or incapacitated by the electromagnetic pulses from the nuclear detonations. Realizing this problem, several governments, most notably the Soviet Union, stored large numbers of decommissioned steam locomotives in disused tunnels or out in rural areas away from possible targets. The idea was that these steam locomotives could then be reactivated using readily available coal and wood to rebuild a devastated world. A common tale in the United Kingdom is that the large number of preserved steam trains is actually being sponsored by the government to use on the main lines again after a potential nuclear holocaust. It seems that trains not only built the modern world, that they not only hold the power to destroy it, but they also may offer a final hope of redemption as the vehicle to begin rebuilding a shattered earth should the unthinkable happen. The golden age of rail may be over, but the legacy of the war train remains as a somber warning and even a glimmer of hope should the worst befall mankind. And there you have the history of the war train. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching. Remember you can find part one of this two part series on war trains on this channel and I'll see you next time.